0: What's up, everyone? My name is Michaela Nemhard, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's get ready to hear the word. The Christian walk is not static. That's why we call it a walk, after all. Just as the seasons change, so does the landscape of our faith as we go through life. We've seen and heard these expectations of what a good Christian should do, or look like, or sound like, but this one-size-fits-all mindset falls short of God's plan for us. All of us fearfully and wonderfully have to keep finding out what it feels like and looks like to be faithful in each stage of life. Although our walks are unique, We're not alone. We're able to gain profound wisdom when we're open to discipleship with those who are further along the way and have walked similar paths. Firm faith is a mark of discipleship in each age and stage of life. My husband's parents, they live in an apartment in our house. And it's awesome to have a front row seat to watch them pass on their faith to a future generation, just like John talked about this past Sunday. If you don't know this about me, I have four children with very busy schedules. And so I'm so thankful that my in-laws are right there, always willing to lend a hand. But that's not why I love having them around. They're really easy to get along with. It's just a joy to see them every single day. There's this one thing about my mother-in-law, though, that I just don't get. Okay, the NFL Super Bowl is coming up, and my father-in-law, my son, my husband, and I were all excited to watch it. But my mother-in-law, she is not. Each week that we're downstairs watching football, she's upstairs watching... Hallmark movies. Where would you be? Now, I'm I'm guessing we've got some Hallmark channel lovers in the crowd. Who has that Hallmark merch? My mother-in-law, she's got the Hallmark slippers and a shirt. The dividing line is drawn. Sorry, friends, I just can't watch Hallmark movies. The same cheesy, predictable storyline every time. City girl goes to the hometown, falls in love. End of story. I just saved you two hours of your life. Hallmark love stories. I just can't. We're in the middle of a mini sermon series called Firm Faith. And the question for this series is, how can your faith remain the same? How can it remain firm when the landscape around it changes? As the seasons in life change, so do our expectations about what a Christian looks like, what they sound like. And you've likely heard it said, the only constant in life is change. True, things around us change, we change. In actuality, though, the only constant is God. God remains the same. In the Old Testament, God declared about himself, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. That's in Malachi 3.6. Psalm 119.89, it confirms also his word, Is eternal it stands firm in the New Testament Jesus was privately sitting with his disciples when he taught them heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away that's Matthew 24 verse 35 because the truth that God does not change it's important then to be absolutely clear about what God's Word teaches about a life stage especially when choosing to transition from one life stage to another. Pastor John, he asked me to speak about firm faith as it's impacted by the life stage of marriage. Because moving from singleness to marriage or from being married to single again, it's a significant life change and it really presses hard against an individual's faith. Now this transition, whether it's chosen or not, in either direction, It should not be taken lightly as many movie love storylines will portray because life is not a Hallmark movie. Let's begin by diving into a text where Jesus, he talks about both life stages. So please, would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19? Now, as always, the verses will also be on the screen. During Jesus' ministry, He traveled, he taught, and even though he was healing, he was positively impacting many, still there were others who were offended and they were completely against him. And those who were, they tried to use the topic of marriage to test Jesus. Matthew chapter 19 verse 3 says, Some Pharisees came, tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? See, the Pharisees, they came to Jesus. They were presuming that divorce was no problem. And to them, it was a given. They just wanted to know if there were any guardrails. And at that time, the Jews believed marriage was a sacred duty. And they had a high view of marriage, but a low view of women. And their low view of women meant that their high ideal of marriage was constantly compromised. And those compromises were added to their laws. So the question that they asked, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Was because they were looking for justification. They were practicing and allowing divorce to be on the grounds for any kind of reason. Literally, the Jewish man in those days could divorce his wife if his wife talked to another man and that bothered him, or if she cooked the wrong way, or even if he simply just didn't like her mother-in-law. I mean, the only thing that he needed to do was to make sure a certificate of divorce was written out. They were divorcing in a carefree and a careless way. Some people still view divorce as an easy out. You know, years ago, I was meeting with a woman. I was just listening to her tell me about how unhappy she was in her marriage. Her husband was not abusive, and he was faithful, but nevertheless, she wasn't happy. She told me she had prayed about it. And because she knew that God cared for her, she believed God would not want her to be unhappy. And so she was convinced that God would not object to her decision to break her wedding vows. Well, why did she believe that? Her parents were divorced. Her His parents were separated. You know, I mean, growing up, she hadn't experienced a biblical perspective. So maybe that had influenced her. But Quite simply, she just absolutely wasn't clear about what God's Word teaches about moving from being married to being single. I mean, how clearly do you understand what God's Word teaches? I understand why there is confusion. Since Jesus spoke those words, many who are serving in the church, they've created their own interpretations. And there are differing opinions between church leaders, specifically about divorce and remarriage, And it's really tempting to just say, like, let's just turn a blind eye. Let's just avoid the topic altogether. But ignoring something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. The truth of the matter is divorce is never an easy out. It's always painful. It's messy. It's complicated. It always impacts more than just two people. I mean, all of us know people who we love who are also divorced my sister's marriage Uh, when it broke down I mean it was traumatic it was painful of course for her and for my nieces and my nephew but it also impacted our own family and our interactions with her ex we are a body and what one of us experiences it will impact other parts of the body and these are real issues part of real life Individuals, as they navigate these transitions, they need to be guided. They need to be loved, not rejected. They're looking for answers to real questions. They're wondering, how can I have firm faith if I'm unsure about what God expects? Now, I'm not gonna summarize the varying opinions in church history. Instead, I'm just gonna share with you the Bible's teachings as I understand it. And I really pray that God will make this meaningful and helpful for your life. In our text, Jesus knows that they're trying to catch him, but he refuses to accept the view that they try to force on him. He very wisely doesn't immediately address the issue of divorce. Instead, he tells them about God's design for marriage. This is where we too need to begin with a clear understanding of what God's original plan for marriage is. The Pharisees, they wanted him to talk about the varying opinions of the day on this topic, but Jesus, he wanted them to go to Scripture for an answer. Take a look at verse 4. Haven't you read the Scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from the beginning God made them male and female, and he said, This explains why a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one since they're no longer two, but one. Let no one split apart what God has joined together. Jesus is quoting from the very first book of the Bible. In the first chapter of Genesis, God presents the first woman to the first man. He was officiating the first ever wedding ceremony. When he blessed their union, he gave them instructions to consummate their relationship, to fill and to govern the earth. Biblical marriage has always been between a man and a woman. And what happens pre-fall is God's will. It is his design. It is repeated by Moses, by Jesus, by Paul, by Peter and others. A biblical wedding ceremony, it includes vows of commitment. The officiant, they speak the words of God's blessing. They pronounce the couple married. It's where you come together to celebrate the commitment that you've made to one another. Now, couples who cohabitate, they, they skip the wedding ceremony and they miss out on this altogether. Living together without getting married is not God's design. That's the world's idea. I've heard many people uh, live together first and they give various reasons, but the, the one reason that I hear young adults argue for cohabitation more for is because they feel that they should own a home. They need to be financially secure before they marry and of course, that has really become more and more difficult recently. It's like your dream wedding or down payment for a house. You know, for many, this is a really tough decision but I believe it's been overcomplicated because people are basing this decision on everything but scripture, cohabitating. It isn't part of the original design for marriage. You know, a simple, inexpensive ceremony in front of a few witnesses, that's really all that's needed. And we would love to celebrate your commitment together with you. Firm faith, it requires knowing and obeying God's word trusting that his design has your best interest at heart. Well, I'm going to divert just for a minute because I think this relates to the baptisms that we're having at many of the sites today. You know, when individuals get baptized at Sanctus, we often compare it to a wedding ring. When individuals make that commitment, see this ring that they exchange, it, it doesn't actually make you married. It's an outward symbol of a decision that you've already made. Well, the same is true of baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. It's an outward symbol of your salvation. Now, Christians who have skipped baptism, they are living with the Lord, but they're not obeying the design spoken of by Jesus. They're avoiding the opportunity to celebrate their commitment to Him, and they're avoiding declaring it publicly. Now, the wonderful truth is It's never too late to take the right next step. If you're not baptized, we'd love the opportunity to celebrate your baptism with you. Okay, back to our text. Jesus quoted also from the second chapter of the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve were united as one flesh before entering the world. Their oneness was forever. So in the beginning, God created marriage. He defined its parameters, marriage is God's idea. Now let's remember, Jesus was present at the time of creation, and yet by the time that Jesus lived on this earth, many healthy relationships and many not so healthy relationships had already happened. So after quoting Genesis, Jesus adds his own divine commentary. He says, What God has brought together, let no man separate. In the message translation, this verse reads, No one should desecrate his art by cutting them apart. See, God intended marriage to last one's lifetime. He intended marriage to have permanence. Divorce isn't part of the original design. Now, the Pharisees, they're not satisfied to be reminded by Jesus of the purpose of marriage. So they ask this question, verse 7. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? They asked, and Jesus replies, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. But it was not what God had originally intended. The Pharisees are referring to what's written down in Deuteronomy 24. But Jesus doesn't actually quote from that passage to offer an answer, instead, He acknowledges it's the hard hearts of people that existed even at the time when Moses was leading, and still. See, the Pharisees, they wrongly thought that God had commanded divorce whenever there was uncleanness, however they defined that. But Jesus noted the difference between command and permitted. See, God never commands divorce, but he permits it, but not just for any reason. One commentary summarized it this way, said, It was as if Jesus said this, Here's the ideal, and then here's the allowance of God when human sinfulness and the hardness of hearts has made the ideal unobtainable. The ideal is marriages for a lifetime. The exception that Jesus gives here is that divorce is allowed on the grounds of sexual immorality. You know, if there is adultery... That does not mean that a couple must get divorced, but they may choose to. A divorced person can remarry if their spouse was the one who had committed the adultery. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, there are two other reasons why a person can remarry. Uh, Romans 7, verses 2 and 3, it says, For a married person is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So, can she remarry? Yes. See, accordingly, she would be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's then free from the law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. So if you're married to a man and you want to divorce him and not be guilty of adultery, there's a simple way. Kill him. No, I'm I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. I'm just trying to see who's paying attention. You know... (sighs) There is another reason. Okay. The other reason why remarriage is permitted. It's in the case of abandonment by a non-believer. That one is found in First Corinthians seven fifteen. It's it says this. It says, An unbelieving partner separates. So if you're a Christian and your spouse is not, if they divorce you, you could remarry. If they stay, I understand, you you may want to leave because there are conflicting beliefs, but you're called to stay and to live at peace. Paul says, if you are abandoned, then divorce is permitted. You know, Paul here, he's using this example between an unbelieving and a believing spouse, but the verse is actually about the principle of abandonment. And abandonment is not just physical, It could also be emotional, and it does encompass abuse. There's many different experiences of of this, and and I regularly advise people, um, I advise separation, and I advise getting to a safe place, rallying the body of Christ so that you can get help because they'll provide community and support for the victims of such evil. The truth is, it really must be looked at case by case. Just to summarize, marriage, it's for a lifetime. There are exclusions. There are exception clauses. So don't get fixated on them. But be fixated about this clear concept. A married couple is something that God has put together, and it's not to be separated. Well, why is that? What happens when a couple gets married? Let's look again at God's plan. One man, one woman being united in oneness. Genesis 2, verses 24, it says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The biblical view of one flesh communicates a unity that covers every facet of a couple's joint lives as a husband and a wife, united together as one emotionally, intellectually, financially, spiritually, and in every other way. The two shall become one in purpose. They're so close that they function like one person. They're balancing each other's strengths and weaknesses so that together they can fulfill their God-given calling. I believe that is actually one of the most important discussions in planning a marriage. I mean, choosing flowers and a photographer is nowhere near as important as premarital counseling, talking specifically about how you complement each other, how you will work together to help one another actually live for the Lord and to grow into being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. Conversely, if you ask most people on the street why they desire to be married, they will describe their reason in terms of getting And then contrast that with the biblical marriage, which is to be a relationship of giving. You know, giving ourselves to each other, looking for ways to meet each other's needs. Oneness is two co-equal persons with separate functions united by a covenant into one entity. They become a new unit. And this new unit, it takes precedence over the previous and future relationships. Wrong priorities is what causes lots of couples frustrations. You know, when we put our parents or our children or even our work's needs regularly above our spouse's needs, that's when there's tension to the unity. Oneness means that we must prioritize our spouse's needs over our own needs And over everyone else's needs. Ephesians 5, it touches on this when it talks about submission. And and I spoke from that passage about marriage a few years ago. And if you're interested, the message is on our sermons uh, archive on our website. But I also said this that day. I said, husbands and wives, men and women, they have equal value. And the Bible is clear that in the beginning, both sexes were made in the image of God. They were endowed with different characteristics because both male and female, they express something different about God. The differences are complementary, not competitive. We can look to the Trinity of God to help us understand submission for equal persons. The oneness that's spoken about in Genesis for marriage is the same word that's used when speaking about God. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, is one. This shows us what God is like. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They do not manipulate each other for their own ends. There is no conquest of unity by diversity or diversity by unity. The three are one and the one is three. In Ephesians 5, Paul shows us that even on earth, Jesus did not use his power to oppress us, but sacrificed everything to bring us into unity with him. So do for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus, and the rest will follow, because the gospel of Jesus and marriage explain one another. That was written by Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. So do you see it? Marriage and singleness, they both reflect God himself. And in the case of marriage, it was designed to be a reflection of the saving love of God for us in Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel helps us understand marriage and marriage helps us understand the gospel. It is the most intimate relationship an individual can have with another human being. Well, I've been married for 20 years this year and I love being married, but there is one thing that I don't like. It's how exposed I feel. You know, without a doubt, my husband has had to witness the the selfish, the, the sinful actions and thoughts that I just, I never thought that I would have, but, but he sees them all and, and I see all of his. You know, almost daily, this brings me face to face with the realization that we are broken. Thankfully, even though we're broken, actually scripture uses the word we're dead because of sin. Jesus Christ, he gave us life when he rose from the dead. And He loves us all so much that all we only need to do is just just accept what Christ did to welcome His Spirit's transforming work in our lives. Because, wow, do we ever need His supernatural help to fight against the enemy of marriage? The enemy of marriage is our own sinful self-centeredness. You know, too many of us, we just have the wrong enemy in mind. Let's stop fighting against each other and start fighting for marriages, for reconciliation. You know, there's this excellent scene in the third session of the marriage course where the host talks about five different tips to prevent a fight from escalating. One of those tips is this, to identify, to focus on the main issue of the conflict. They tell you to imagine a three-seater couch. And on this couch, there is a wife sitting at one end, a husband at the other. And there's like this big yoga ball that's sitting in between them. And it's labeled with the word issue. Can you picture it? The couple, they can't see each other. There's this massive obstacle in the way. And of course, the fight that they have, it's growing because there's this huge block in between them. It's blocking their communication and blocking their connection. Focusing on the issue would mean that the couple decides to move together, move this contentious issue out in front of them so that now they're facing the issue. And rather than attacking each other, communication, connection, it's restored. And they can now handle this conflict together when they put it in front of them. That's how you handle conflict as one Since God's idea of marriage is two becoming one, obviously marriage changes everything. It requires self-denial. The alternative, singleness, it also requires self-denial. Matthew 19, verse 10, it says this, Jesus' disciples, see, they came up to him after the Pharisees had left. And while they were sitting privately, they then asked this question. They said, if this is the case, it is better not to marry. Not everyone can accept this statement, Jesus said. Only those whom God helps. He says, some are born as eunuchs. Some have been made eunuchs by others, and some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And let anyone accept this who can. You know, at first glance, this seems to be an odd conclusion for Jesus' disciples to reach because the Bible really does speak quite highly of marriage. But Jesus, he does not challenge their verdict. In fact, he appears to affirm it. He has a high view of singleness. Do you understand Jesus' view of singleness? Singleness for the Christian can look very different from singleness for someone who is not If you are not a follower of Jesus, you may see singleness as simply just freedom to play the field. From the point of view of Christianity, to be single means both to be unmarried and to be committed to sexual abstinence. The Bible is very clear that sexual behavior outside of marriage is wrong. You know, this is the path that our Lord chose. Jesus made himself a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, The term eunuch, it's just used figuratively for anyone who's voluntarily abstaining from marriage or in other cases has been given a spiritual gift like Paul had. I love this summary. Jesus, he willingly became fully human for us. He willingly became a male. He was a sexual human being as we all are, but he lived a celibate lifestyle. He never married. He never entered a romantic relationship. He never had sex. Jesus was not calling others to a standard that he was not willing to embrace himself. He wasn't calling singles to sexual abstinence while knowing nothing of it himself. He lived this very teaching. His not being married is not incidental. It shows us that none of these things, marriage, romantic fulfillment, sexual experience, none of that is intrinsic to being a full human being. Sam Alberry wrote that in the seven myths about singleness. You know, in singleness, we see the sufficiency of the gospel. It reminds us to find satisfaction in Jesus alone. Singleness has many other blessings associated with it. The greatest gift of singleness, as it's written about by Paul in the New Testament, it's the freedom to concentrate on ministry for God in ways that a married person cannot. And I personally do not have the time flexibility to serve the Lord that many of my single friends have. Now, if you're married and you've been listening all along and realize, oh, now she's talking about singleness and you think, oh, thank goodness, I can just take a break from listening for a bit. No way. You need to lean in now because God's word to singleness is something that we all need to know about. I mean, whatever your stage of life, whatever your marital status, well, why? Well, to be blunt, most of us who are married will one day be single again, whether it's in this life or for sure in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, secondly, singleness, it directly affects us all. We are a body. We belong to one another. I mean, I need to know what the Christian life is like for you. And in your situation, you need to know what it's like for me in mine. I have a stake in the health of the marriages in this church family. And those of us who are married, we have a stake in the health of the singleness for those who are single. There are many misconceptions about singleness being bad or, or believing that singleness means oh, there's no intimacy or there's no family. Well, that's just simply not true. And it's time to stop promoting the idea that everyone should get married. Single or married. Both are gifts from God. Both are good. Both are not easy paths. You know, I have many conversations with single people who tell me that they would rather be married. I have many conversations subsequently with married people who would rather be single. You know, there's this assumption that the grass is greener on the other side. And yet the truth is, the grass is simply greenest wherever it's getting watered. The church will be, and is, composed of the single and the married. And both are called to live faithfulness, lives of faithfulness. Neither one should be elevated over the other. It is important to be absolutely clear about what God's word says about each, because that is, is the starting point for firm faith. You know, transitioning from one stage to the other should not be approached lightly. I appreciate so much what is written in the Book of Common Prayer. It warns this, it says, Marriage is not by any to be enterprise, or, nor taken in hand unadvisedly, lightly, or wantonly, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God. It's in the fear of God. That's how we ought to view our status. You know, one day we're just going to stand before the Lord. We're going to give account for every single thought, every motive, every behavior that we've ever done. So whether you are single, whether you're married, whether you're single again, no matter if it was by choice or not, are you living in accordance with God's design for the stage of life that you're in? If not, why not? If it was because you didn't know his idea, well, now you do. So next question, do you trust him? What's one step that you can take that would help move you towards his design? Yeah, every day I know I need to invite God's help. He's a God of grace. He's the one who offers mercies new every morning. You know, these are very real. They're, They're complicated questions of life, but they're just not too big for him he will guide you and if you go to him you will experience his unconditional love and grace real life it's not a Hallmark movie you know in a culture as confused as this one in which we find ourselves the first place that we need to look it's to god his scripture has much to say about singleness and marriage And those who are a little bit further along in the life stage that you are in, they could certainly provide practical tips and advice on what has helped them. And that's what you're going to hear next Sunday as we continue in this sermon series. So I encourage you, seek out mentors, read books, listen to podcasts from individuals who aren't just giving their opinion, but who are working really hard to help you understand and to follow biblical principles on these very difficult, but very real, important life issues. So as I said, the grass is greenest where it is watered, as in, how are you adding refreshment to the stage of life that you're in? Well, here are three practical ways that you can offer refreshment. So for those of us who are married, if you are even living together in a relationship, I highly recommend the marriage course. The marriage course, it's a series of seven sessions It's designed to help couples to invest in their relationship, to build a strong marriage. The videos, they include a number of marriage experts and professionals, but my favorite moments are actually the interviews with the couples. They talk about what it's like to have a successful marriage. They're vulnerable, they're honest, and they're actually pretty funny. And the course is just so well done. Now for those who are single, a resource that I am especially grateful for is Sam Albury's book, Seven Myths About Singleness. As the title suggests, the book tackles these seven myths about singleness, which are common among Christians today. And he writes from his own experience, his illustrations, they're funny, they're brilliant. So if you're married or if you're single, you would benefit from reading this book. Now, whatever life stage you're in, We can't say this enough around here. But the third thing that I'm going to recommend that I believe will bring you refreshment is if you would connect small, you know, this life, it's difficult. It isn't meant for you to live alone. And if you're not in a connect group today is a perfect day for you to join if you meet regularly and if you just do life together with a group of people who are at various stages in life as well, so single single people and married people just meeting together, that's a great way for you to grow in your faith, to learn from one another and to receive practical and prayer support. So as I come to a close today, one last comment from the Matthew 19 text. You know, Jesus, he confronted the hard hearts of people. So, how hard or how tender is your heart today? Here's a, a really relevant verse that I'm going to suggest is worth reading regularly Ephesians 4, verse 32. It says, Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray together. Well, Lord Jesus, please, would you give us tender hearts? Give us tender hearts for each other and also for your word. We've heard today about your original design, the gift that marriage is, the gift that singleness is. So we just ask, God, would you help us to view them through the lens of scripture so that one day when we stand before you, may we have an answer for the choices that we make in this life. Would you help our faith in you to remain firm and steadfast all the days of our lives? Thank you, God, that you are always faithful to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. Alright, I pray you're blessed by the word and we'll see you next week.